0: And I'm very glad to have been invited here again to show my most recent work, not my most recent painting, because I'm painting all the time, but new, and my most recent work of this sort, of this magnitude, of this size. And uh, I'll unveil it in a moment, and then talk about it, and talk about the meaning behind it. But how it started, I was in a coffee shop in Seattle with my wife, Anne visiting our grandchildren who were in a soccer competition which started at 8 in the morning on a very <laughs> cold, busily, terrible this uh, January. <laughs> so I was going into the coffee shop any time I could find it, <laughs> a reason to. And while I was in the coffee shop, the uh, phone rang, and it was my friend Kent, who was a pastor in Anchorage. Now, Kent's a visionary guy like Zart, like your pastor, like Zart, both. And he said, Hyatt, uh, I'm doing a series on the Beatitudes. Have you ever th- considered painting the Beatitudes? And if you did, how would you do it? I said, no, and I don't know. <laughs> because how do you paint the Beatitudes? You know, they're all conceptual. And you don't paint concepts. You know, you paint things. And uh, what do they look like? So I thought, how do you do it? He said, well, pray about it. I thought, well, you pray about it. This is your idea. It's your idea. <laughs> he must have, and I must have. You know, I don't remember, but I, was, I started thinking about it, because at first I thought, what, how do you do this, the Lord? And he started giving me ideas. But really, how do you paint it? You know, how do you paint, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall uh, inherit the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of God. How do you paint that? How do you paint, blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted, I mean, think with me. You won't get any ideas. (laughs) He said he looked online. He says there isn't anything. I looked online, too, and there isn't anything. There's a few things of Jesus doing the Sermon on the Mount, you know, teaching. There's there's sometimes good paintings, sometimes not too good, but that's what you get. You don't get these concepts. How do you paint, uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth? You paint an earth? How do you paint blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they shall be filled? A starving person? Just How do you paint blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy? Mother Teresa? Maybe, but that's too specific. That's just her then. How about us? How do you paint... Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You paint a big heart? You paint God, who's invisible? How do you paint? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be known as the children of God. And how do you paint, the, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's no way. So I said, like, Lord, there's no way. <laughs> but then I started getting ideas. I thought, well, maybe faces. You know, I paint faces. I, I like to paint faces. I probably paint faces more than anything. I draw faces. I'm more than sketching faces. Maybe faces. In fact, here I am in the restaurant, faces of people. Everybody here has a face. I bring up my little, carry, my little phone, you know what we do, kind of surreptitiously, of as if we're answering the phone and we're kind of click taking a picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, they will never know, and because I didn't use those pictures anyway. I mean, they had some interesting people around. But I needed pictures with emotions. And how do you get that? So I started doing research. We have, in this generation, you can find stuff. You can go online and great photography showing emotion or something. And so after, as time went by, I did a search, but I thought, I think this might work, I think. But you can't just make a painting with a face on it and say, there it is, there's a happy person so everybody will know that that's about this. No, it's got to be more than that. I've got to put the words right on there, which is not normally done on a painting. But I've done it sometimes, so I thought, okay, if I put the words on the painting and the face, maybe that's the concept. And I said to Kent, what do you think of that idea? I He said, yeah, Whatever. He wasn't helping me at all. In fact, he told me, he said, I had a dream. That's why I get the phone call going. Yeah, I had a dream of you painting the Beatitudes. I said, well, what do they look like? He says, I don't, I don't know. You were just doing it. I said, well, that's no help. So I thought, well, maybe this is it. So in time, I had other projects. We were still in Seattle. came home and I had other things going on. So I didn't start it right then, but I started sketching it right then, started sketching ideas. And they're on my... Sketchbook In fact, my sketchbook is out there. you want to take a look at it, but um in time, I started painting it, and in further time, I painted it. so I'm going to show you the painting right now and then talk a little bit more about it. Now, another thing by the way, I should say first, he also said in that same conversation, "You should paint jesus too and I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to do that. You know, I was hesitant on that. I thought, I already don't know how to paint these eight. And Jesus, what does he look like? You know, you don't want to get that one wrong. Although he's very forgiving. (laughs) So I said, well, I'll think about that, you know. And uh, so I'm going to show you Jesus first, but I painted him last. But he's at the beginning of the thing. So he comes out first here, and I'll just show it to you. And the caption on it is Then his disciples came to him and he began to teach. And then the first beatitude put this away. Ah, He's going to fall off. There's always something. Where's the devil? God, you're in the details. That's good enough. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And see the emotions. Blessed are they that mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And finally, blessed are the persecuted. for theirs is the kingdom of God. And there's my pain. It's basically nine paintings, but it's one painting. You know, the creative process in God doesn't mean that God just lays it up for you and you get a vision and you do the vision. It's not like that. It's like you get ideas and you try things and if it doesn't work, you try something else. And you see... As you go, maybe the hand of God in it. You're looking for it. But in fact, I think he's basically standing back and saying, let me see what you would do. I made you with a certain set of gifts, certain, certain mentalities, certain approach to life. You'll do it different than anybody else would do it. do it. Try things. That means it's a bunch of problem solving. Basically, I think that's what creativity is. It's problem solving. It's what painting is. You get an idea and then you try to get there. And you're making mistakes as you go. Every painting is that way. This was that way. So the fact that it's a God thing doesn't mean that it's just easy and comes together. And and often my things that I try to do for God, I'll just tell you, I confess to you, is my worst work. (laughs) Because it's like, I don't know. I'm trying too hard or what. This one I think came together. I had this idea for faces and put it on. I put a scripture on it. But I thought, what size? I asked Kent, "What size?" He said, "I don't know. It's up to you. You're the artist." I thought, boy, he gives me a lot of permission. I'm grateful, but no help, you know. I go into my my closet not closet, but a storeroom for I keep my art. It's on storage and going in and out, and I went in there to find a canvas. What's canvas size? What do I have? I came across an abstract that I did some years ago. I did two at the same time. One of them sold. I still had this one. I thought, "Eh, it's about the right size, I think, maybe. I thought, maybe this painting. It's not going anywhere. I'll just use this. I'll paint on top of it. Sometimes I do that. I'll turn around. Now my earful thing is coming off, and (laughs) my signature's at the top. I can paint that out, and I can paint right on that. And that's what I did. And then I took my face, the first one, and I started working on this one. And at the first I had this, I had a picture of a woman who was in that, st- but she had, she was sitting on a chair, and I was going to use the whole chair. And I thought, actually, I think, just the face. I think that's better. Big face. I'm just telling you that you're trying things. That's how it is. There's a great verse in, in, uh, in Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books, and one of my favorite verses. It says, sow your seed in the morning, and in the evening, do not let your hand be idle. Because you do not know which will succeed. Maybe this and maybe that. Maybe both will succeed equally well. What God is saying to us is you are human beings with brains. Try things. I love that. So that's what I'm doing here. Trying things. Put the face on here. Worked out the lettering. Put it on there. Put it on there. I thought, yeah, I think that works. I sent a picture of my friend cat I said, what do you think? He said, great. I said, "Yeah, but you're just positive. I still. <laughs> and I'm glad he's positive, but I don't know if that it's great, or if he's just being supportive. But actually, I think, I think that works. But now what do I do with the rest of them? I mean, do I use that same background pattern all the way through? I mean that could get a little boring, and then I thought, I know. Now I don't know where this idea came from. I'll give God the credit. The spectrum. I'll do the complete spectrum. All you, you know, the spectrum of light, all of white light is divided into colors that we see, beyond which we don't see, and beyond which we don't see. It goes from, from ultraviolet to infrared. And then from ultraviolet, you go into blues, and blues turn into greens when they mix with yellows, and yellows turn into oranges, and oranges turn into red, and then pretty soon it's infrared, and you don't see it anymore. That's the color spectrum. I said, I'll use that. Partly because it works, it, it solves my problem of what to do. I still got to figure out how to do it and how to make it nice looking. But it's, there's also symbolic symbolism to it because the spectrum is complete, and it's like Jesus's beatitudes are complete. It's like if he would have, if he had a ninth one in mind, he'd have given it. But no, he said, "This is you know, those are the ones I want to say." There's a completeness in both things. So that, so when I saw that, then I I think God is helping me. You know what I mean? I'm still trying to think of things, but when I see something, this works. Then I thought, well, now I've already done the first one before I got the spectrum idea, but where does it fit in the spectrum? Well, it's the first one. It's blue. It's fit. I think God is in this. You know, that's how you see him. You sort of see him after the fact. You see that he's been there. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm still working it out. Every one of these, some of these, I had to do twice. Sometimes I smeared over the lettering, came back and hit it again because that's that's how it is with art. It doesn't. It's not so divine that it just happens. You're doing it. And in some places, there are still mistakes. I'm not going to show you where. <laughs> because after a while, you probably say, "This is the best I can do in the time I have, and that's it. Move on, next thing." So that's that's. Uh, I'm going to say something about the Beatitudes in general. But first I want to show this, just because otherwise I'll forget. I made a poster of it later, and I have these available up front. And you can really see it here. You can really see the spectrum. The thing is, I made these paintings to be separate. I thought they'd be separated by a couple of feet each, you know, like the Stations of the Cross or something like that. And they'd work well that way. But with this kind of merging of the colors working, it works well as one nice big long painting, if I do say so. (laughs) I mean, I give God the credit, but I still say it's unique, and there isn't anything else like this. After After I did it, and I realized that people are responding to it, put on my website, and lots of praise, I thought, wow, I think this is for the kingdom. I don't think it's just for my friend up in Anchorage who has it now. These are prints. But they look just like the original. I think it's for the kingdom. If I can figure out how to get it to the kingdom, and this is one way right now, just talking to you. Because I think this is something that Jesus wants us to not ignore. They were first, virtually first out of his mouth when he started teaching. Literally not so much, maybe, but it's the way it comes out in Matthew. At the end of Matthew 4, well, Matthew, it started at the beginning of Matthew 4, Jesus, well, Jesus is, he appears on the stage, and John says, there's the Lamb of God, right? So that's the early ministry, and then Jesus immediately goes off to the the wilderness to be tempted to the devil for 40 days. He overcomes that, ministered to by the angels. And then he comes back and starts his actual speaking ministry. It's a peripatetic ministry. That is, he says he's walking, walking, walking. Goes up way up to Syria, all, all the way through Galilee, Galilee down to the southern part of Judea. Goes to Jerusalem, goes to the Decapolis, which is ten cities around the lake. He goes over to Transjordan, across the river. I was thinking, how did they, they didn't have bridges. They must have fords some places. Anyway, it's a big deal to get across the river. And everywhere he went, he gathered crowds because people were stunned at his teaching. Well, they were stunned at his miracle-working power, too. He was healing people. Of course, you need more of that. You bring your friends. You need it. But his is teaching. Nobody had ever spoken like that. It's like he's interpreting the Old Testament in fresh ways. So people followed him. And we don't know how many people followed him. Matthew doesn't tell us as well as he could have because he was a mathematician, well, he was a bookkeeper. He was a tax collector. He could do numbers, but he doesn't say how many. He just says vast crowds. So every town he went into probably picked up some more. And, you know, when you come into a town with a vast crowd and the town's not that big, it's a big deal. And the more people come. All I'm saying is by the, by the time Matthew 5 opens, Jesus sees the crowds and he goes up to a mountain and his disciples come to him. That's the setting. you get taking a break? Is he reflecting. Is he now only talking to his disciples and not to the crowds? Doesn't matter. Apparently, the spirit doesn't tell us. His disciples, which are new, they are also just new followers and also astounded and waiting to see what he would say and do next. They come to him, and he says, "The kingdom of God is like." He gives the Sermon of the Mount, which is uh, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters worth in Matthew, which is basically an interpretation of the Old Testament in, free, in fresh, fresh words. It's a beautiful passage. I memorized it myself early in my Christian life. It was very beautiful. I couldn't say it now, but it was good, a good exercise. Jesus, of all, of all the speakers of all time, was probably the most able to say the most in the, few, in the fewest words. And I think the Beatitudes, which is the preface to the Sermon on the Mount, is the highest example of that. In a very few words, he says things that are infinitely deep. He'll never plumb them to the bottom. And that's true with all of his words. So he says... He gives what we call the Beatitudes. Nobody else, it's not a scriptural term. We call them that. A Beatitude is a statement that starts with the word blessed are. Beatitude. And he's basically saying what the kingdom of God is like. And what the citizens of the kingdom of God are going to be like. So we have to grapple with certain things like what is the kingdom of God and when is it the kingdom of God and when is it the kingdom of heaven? When is it? What is it? When is it? Who's in it? What does it mean? Kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are, are terms that are used interchangeably by different writers but they mean the same thing. When we think kingdom of heaven we think okay that's later. No, it's later but it's not just later. It's now. And kingdom of God is just another way of saying the same thing. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of whom there is a king. One Jesus. Now, we don't think of terms of kings being Americans. We think of presidents who have terms. So we don't have the same concept of kingdoms that most of the world has had over time. Where the king has the last word on everything. He's there for the rest of his life. That's our king. And the rest of his life is forever. Is the kingdom of heaven is opposed to the kingdom of earth, and we'll see that as we look at these things. Every one of the concepts of the kingdom of heaven is opposite to the kingdom of earth, and the beatitudes come out opposite of what we normally think. They're always counterintuitive, antithetical to what we would think otherwise. They're spiritual, but there's, though they're spiritual, they they work out in this world, in this realm. They're both instructive and definitive. That is, the the Beatitudes define the citizens of the kingdom. The citizens of the kingdom are going to be like this. They're going to be different than the world. At the same time, they're also instructive. The citizens of the kingdom should be like this. If you're not quite there yet, you've got growth. And that's true with all of us. So every one of them sets a higher bar than any of us will ever reach. And yet it's the goal for every one of us, and we have a starting place because of the Spirit in us. Another thing is that they are states of grace. That is to say, none of them can be performed, acted out, lived lived in on our own. Every one of them requires the Spirit of God in us to do it. Without the Spirit of God, we won't even want to. Because the, the Spirit of man is antithetical to these things. With the Spirit of God, we say, oh, this is how I want to live. My mother, when she was raising her wayward child, would <laughs> say sometimes, hi, why don't you see how good you can be? <laughs> well, you know, that didn't, didn't have any effect on me. But I listen, I hear it now. I say, yeah, Mom, that's exactly what. That's what I want to do. I want to see how good I can be. I mean, I'm not saying I'm there every day. But on my better days, I am. That's sort of what this is about. Rise to another level. You're on another kingdom. Now, one of the ways we know we're in the kingdom of God now is because we have a king, one Jesus, who who is reigning over all. And he was the predicted king of Israel. When John said, or did I say this? When John said, the kingdom of God is is at hand, he meant now. He didn't mean coming. And he said, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. When Jesus came, right after that, said, the kingdom of God is at hand. He meant now. Now, it wasn't, you know, the whole thing had to happen. He had to be crucified, resurrected, you know, to be the king of the earth. But it was at hand right then. And if you, were, if you weren't sure, you could listen to Zachariah's prophecy, which is 400 years before, who said, your king will come to you riding on the fall of a, of a donkey. Well, you remember when that happened, Palm Sunday, the week before he was crucified. He came into Jerusalem riding on the fall of a donkey, hailed as king by the multitudes. There it is. A week later, the crucifixion, that's the greatest crime of all history. But, you know, it was all God's plan, too, because it's the greatest grace of all history. And the resurrection is the only time in in all history. All these things are superlatives, highest things ever, Jesus. So anyway, he says, if you're going to be in the kingdom, and you are, you disciples, this is the way you're going to be. The way life is going to be, the way it should be. That's another thing. Is it just to the disciples or to all of us? As I said he came. The disciples came to him. Does that mean just they get it and the multitudes down there don't? Not necessarily. In fact, disciples and Christians is used interchangeably. The word Christian wasn't used at all until later on, until Paul's time. You know, up in Antioch, when they started calling them Christians, Jesus was resurrected some time earlier. But, the, but they use, and it's only used about three times in the, in the New Testament, but every time it's used, it means disciples. It doesn't mean the twelve apostles, it means disciples, which is followers of Christ. So followers of Christ are disciples and they're Christians. So basically, the disciples came to him, he talked to him, and he's talking to us. It's not just those twelve. It's to us. We need to know that. And the fact that he said these things first—I mean, any public speaker is going to make sure he gets his main points out real early, right? <laughs> so I think these things are not to be ignored, and we tend to—not, I mean, not really—we love it all. But we—I'm talking about myself. You read them, and you read, and you keep reading. So after a while, you're just full of everything, which is great. But he said, no, don't don't move too fast. Get this, get these. Get these, and that's helped. Just painting this has helped me because while I was painting it, I thought, "Why not?" I'll listen to messages, internet, whatever, on the Beatitudes while I'm at it. It was sort of filling me. It was making it more meaningful. Now I'm half listening because I'm half solving problems. I thought, oh, that was a mess. I can't. Get, I can't believe how much black paint I have to do on this one. I got to do this again. I'm doing all that stuff because you know that's creative process. So I'm only half listening. But then I turned it on again, listen to it again, so anyway all i 'm saying is i 'm using that time to let this come into me in the end i I told you I realized I had a something that s- succeeded because I got well the only way for me to show my friend in Anchorage, what I had done when I finished it. So I couldn't back up far enough from it because I was finishing in my garage. I made a little video of it just walking along and I sent that to him so he could see it was. And he said, fantastic. And then I put it on my blog and on Facebook and I got a lot of that, a lot of praise. I thought, all right, I hit it. And then I made a little book. Being a book designer from way back. I made a little book, and it kind of talks about the process and my sketchbook pages and the saying, and then little passages about each one. I asked my friend Ann Voskamp, who's a great Christian writer, if she would write an introduction for me. And she would happy. She was happy to, but not able to because she was so busy. So I took a while. I said, "Look, just write a paragraph. In fact, I'll write it for you." <laughs> <laughs> it was a joke because she's such a powerful writer and she came through and she wrote me four paragraphs I won't read them all I'll read the last two but it starts with Hyatt's Hyatt Moore's embodies grace and the passion of Christ and is the only art that hangs in our home well, that's a compliment right there and when I first laid eyes on Hyatt's visual interpretation of the Beatitudes my heart split and leaked stilled and undone holy ground. How does one looking into pigment on canvas feel like looking into the astonishing heart of cre- the creator God? That's the unparalleled power of Hyatt's paintings. They're fresh revelations of the unchanging holy God on high that speak to the deepest caverns of the soul. All right. I'm grateful. And humble. And humbled. When I first started painting, I thought, you know, I want to paint, but I don't know how God's going to use this. He's using it. I'm grateful. And so when he came up to the mountain top, he sat down and taught. And so I think I'm going to sit down and say a few things about each of these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. you think that is so antithetical? You think, wouldn't, don't we need to be strong in spirit? A friend of mine who is a mature Christian and mature in age, both, she's a mature person, and said, "I you don't get that one. I said, I know what you mean. It doesn't seem right. And yet, it was the first thing Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's not the person that lacks spiritual qualities, no. We grow in spirit in our maturity, of course. But if we start thinking that we're strong in spirit, the Lord can use us less. It's like he he exalts the humble, and he's wary of the proud who's full of themselves. And I know a lot of people in the world, I mean, fellow artists, they'll, they'll write their art, artist statement and often they'll say, my work is very spiritual. And so, well, first, they don't see it. You know, not get it. And two, I think you're, you're full. You know? I think that's the strong in spirit that everybody wants and thinks they are. And God resists it. He says, I want the poor in spirit. The people that are humble. Those are the people I can work with. I get the idea that it's only the poor in spirit that inherit the kingdom of God. The starting place of our birth into the spirit, things of the spirit and the kingdom of God, is our humbling ourselves, repenting. That's the beginnings. Now we have the kingdom of God. If we can just keep on saying, I'm strong in spirit like I don't need God, you can't get in. So it's interesting that this is the first thing he said. Remember Moses, who, you know, he knew his, uh, was of the Hebrew family, but he was raised in, in, the, uh, in Pharaoh's palace. And one day he, needed to, he felt he needed to defend his people. Somebody was being abused by an Egyptian, so he took it out on the Egyptian and ended up killing him. And then had to escape. And was out of the picture for forty years. Well, he was strong in spirit, and God couldn't use it. Forty years later, he's quite humbled. God comes and says, "I'm going to use you now." He says, "You can't use me. I'm no good. I can't even speak." He was poor in spirit. So I can, I'll go with you. Now he can use him, And he was the most humble man on the earth after that. Job, similar, not quite the same, but Job in his, his dialogues with his three friends, the detractors, kept getting stronger in spirit in a sense because he had to defend himself. And finally, God revealed Himself to him in nature, not in, not from words from heaven, but just revealed him, his creation. And and when Job saw it, he put his hand over his mouth and said, "I repent in dust and ashes." Now he's weak in spirit, and then he got healed. Pretty interesting. So that's actually what we're after now. When I was thinking about this, what I was painting, I thought. And I realized that the Sermon on the Mount is an interpretation, correct interpretation of the Old Testament. He says so. That it must be so with the Beatitudes, and sure enough, I found in all the cases but the last, and I'll tell you why. Then, if I remember, the there is a scriptural reference in the Old Testament that Jesus seems to be remarking on in the with fresh words in the New Testament. For example, in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, I'll read the verse. For this was what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. Well, that's pretty obvious. He lives in a high and holy place. But also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. He That's where he lives. With us when we're that way. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So it's basically our entrance to heaven. And then we have it, heaven later and now. We are now a new person on this earth as citizens of a king. (laughs) Blessed are they who mourn. That's another one. It doesn't sound very blessed. In fact, when people say the Beatitudes really are the be happy attitudes, I think that's kind of trite. I don't get that. I mean, happiness is one of the things God has for us. And happiness is better than sadness, usually, generally speaking, although sadness is better for us, as it says in Ecclesiastes. But mourning is not happy. It's sort of the opposite. And he said, blessed are those who mourn. Well, what are you mourning about? Well, you have a, few, a true perspective of who you are by comparison to the purity of God. We're sinners. If we see that, I mean, if we really see it, not just flippantly, the yes, uh, We mourn. We're, we're sorry. Now, we don't have to stay there because God does forgive us and he does restore, restore our joy and he does say right here that you will be comforted. But you won't be comforted if you don't mourn. They go together. So you have to be honest with yourself and let it, let it be You'll be comforted, but don't be flippant and say, "Ah, I'm pretty good. You know what I mean? I'm talking to myself. (laughs) It's not self-pity. It's not depression. It's not whining. It's legitimate. legitimate. And you're also mourning about other things. I mean, I mourn for the direction of our country. I'm not going to go into there, but I see it. It saddens me. Jesus mourned over Jerusalem. So, it's not You know, it's an honest perspective. You don't necessarily stay there, but you acknowledge it, and God will comfort you. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim the good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release prisoners from the darkness, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn. There it is, in the Old Testament. Blessed are the meek. This is one I love, partly because I, I think the painting came out pretty great. I like it, all those greens. I had never thought of making a person green, you know, but it was that spectrum idea that took me there. And, and now I'd like to make a t shirt of it, work it, wear it around. Blessed are those who Amer- make but, but before I thought, meek? I mean, that's not a man thing. It's not an American man thing. By, by the world standards, it's opposite. But when you look at it from the, this perspective, it's basically a complete submission to God. It's an equanimity of spirit that isn't trying to vaunt himself. Jesus was meek. I mean, Jesus is the most powerful person to ever lived on the earth. Who else could talk to the weather and have it change? You know, storm be still. Star. Not only does it stop blowing, you might think, okay, it's a coincidence. How come the ocean went down, the lake? The lake lathes take uh, you know, six hours or 12 hours to go down. And went down right there. Said, Whoa, who do we have with us in this boat? And that's what they said. Anyway, I'm just saying, that he's a very powerful person. we keeping his power under restraint for the sake of the moment, for the sake of his ministry. He called himself meek. That person called himself meek. I want to be meek like that. He was meek right up to the point, I mean, he, when he was reviled, he didn't revile again. He accepted it all from God. Oh, there were times he spoke back to the Pharisees when they needed it. But he take it right up to the cross. He said, Lord God, I'd like to get out of this as I can, but I see I can't, so whatever you say. My paraphrase. Right up to the cross. That's meekness and power. So blessed are the, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, I don't know quite what that means, but it sounds like a pretty nice inheritance. Psalm thirty-seven, ten 10 through 11 says, A little while and the wicked will be no more, though you will look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. There it is. Old Testament. I love it. Next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I love that one too. And I love the painting. That one I really did have to work to get there. But I finally did. And she became the cover wide-eyed, hungry, and thirsty. You know, it's a gift. It's a gift in the physical realm. We don't think of it as that because we call it just nature. We get hungry, we eat. You think, well, that's the way it is. But if we didn't get hungry and didn't eat, we would die because we have to eat. The body needs eating all the time, regularly, same with drinking, all the time. Without it, it would die. We don't let it die because we get hungry. It's there. It's all part of the mechanism. But in the spiritual realm, which we also need, we need to have hunger in the spirit. We don't have it naturally. We go through life without ever having hunger in the spirit. It's kind of a gift, too. If you do hunger and thirst, then your spirit will rise. not only revive, but it'll grow. And the more you're hungry, the more you'll be fed. It's not one time. All the time. Three times a day, whatever. Be a good metaphor. Three times a day, to physical, why not spiritual? If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. Who doesn't want to be filled? We all want to be filled. The whole world wants to be fulfilled in whatever is thereafter. I was, you know, whenever you start your head, your goals. Well, the first thing is I want to be fulfilled in what? In what I'm trying to do. God says you can have it, but seek the right thing. Seek righteousness. I love that verse also in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, seek God and His righteousness, and all things should be added unto you. I took that seriously early in my Christian life. I thought, I'm going to just apply that wherever I can, wherever I think of it. And now, later, much later, I see the result of it. I can, I can say, I have everything I want or need. I mean, okay, I think of something. i like to have that. But it's not, if I can't have it, I won't be happy. I have a deep happiness with what I have, period, right now. And I believe it's because God has done his part of the promise, which he will always do. I take him up on him, do it literally, he will take it literally. So not only do I have everything I need, have, or, want or need, I know I can always get more because God is always doing this. I'm always seeking him. So it's kind of my testimony of a life of faith. And I'm not bragging. I'm bragging on God. Okay, taking him seriously, and he does perform his side every time. Isaiah fifty-five one and two: Come, you who are thirsty, come who are to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, and without money and without cost. Why spend on what? Why spend on what is not bread and labor for what does not satisfy? We've had plenty of that, haven't we? I did. Listen to me and eat what is good. You will delight in the richest of fare. In this life. Take him up on it. Blessed are the merciful. Interesting that this one could have been first. Because it's mercy that God extended to us first to bring us into the kingdom at all. Our forefathers, forefather and foremother, failed in the garden, hid from God. Fellowship was cut. God sought them out, made them close, and restored fellowship. He was merciful. So it's his mercy that brought us into the kingdom in the first place. Our sin is what cuts us off from God. It hardly matters which sin it is. It matters to us because it embarrasses us. We're ashamed. But from Satan's perspective, it's not even that. It's the, the fact that now you will not have fellowship from God because you will run and hide from him. Isn't that the case? We cut off our fellowship from God because we're ashamed of ourselves. And Jesus, uh. Well... God is ready to restore us. He who confesses our sins is forgiven for all unrighteousness. It said that in 1 John. He's willing that moment to bring us back. It's us that are slow. God is merciful. He understands our position, He understands where we're weak. So He says, Blessed are you when you're merciful. If you're going to be a kingdom, if you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom, you're going to be like the king, okay? And he's merciful. Now, I could say, yeah, but, you know, some people, my wife has the gift of mercy and I don't, so she can do it and I don't have to. (laughs) Well, she does and I don't, but that doesn't mean I have that as an excuse, May not be my life calling, but it's something that I do when the moment is in front of me. You know, something happens, and if mercy is my first blush attitude toward it, and I'm making progress, because that's what God would do. Even the uh, Lord's Prayer says it: "Lord, forgive us, as we forgive others." You know, the parable that Jesus gave, very powerful, where somebody owed his master, whoever, so much that he could never repay it. I mean, like in the millions of dollars, if it was actually given. Way beyond. And the master saw that and said, well, I'll just forgive you all of it. It's kind of like God us, because we couldn't ever repay God, but he gives it to us. Well, And then that man had somebody who owed him just a little bit. And the guy couldn't pay it. He said, well, you know, to jail with you. Debtors' prison. I'm not forgiving you. Wrong attitude. And the friend saw this and reported it to the original master, who then, in the parable, says, now you're going to prison. Basically... It's a very clear meaning. God says, I saved you way more than you could ever repay. Now you be that way. And if you're not that way, don't think I don't notice it. Be merciful. I'm talking to myself. Blessed are the pure and high. I love this one. Not that I'm so pure. Not that I'm very pure at all very often. But I love the... The result, I love the promise, for they shall see God. Oh, what a great thing that is. And it's not like I'll see God later, face to face. Yeah, that's true, although it sounds a little scary. It's uh, that you'll see God in your life. You see the incidents that God has been there, <laughs> right there with you. Like a th- few times, like when I painted that one that happened to be the right one for that space. I thought, hey. Look, I see God. I don't see Him, but I see His evidence. I want to see, I want to have those kind of experiences all day long. You know, not just now and then. I mean, now and then is good, but I'd like to see Him a lot. How do you see Him a lot? Be pure. Be pure. And I use the child's face because the child, you know, seemed like the less sullied. And they're also more faithful, more believing, more ready, which is what Jesus is looking for, have the faith of a child. Be open-hearted, be open-eyed. You'll see God. If you don't, you're skeptical. You won't see Him. He's still around. You're still around. You just don't get to see Him. So I want to be that person who is pure in heart, so that I can see God. And you know, it can happen any time. David writes this psalm right after his sin with Bathsheba, which is big time. He tried to cover it and tried to kill her husband to cover it. You know, major, major sin upon sin upon sin. Here's our righteous David acting this way. Caught. Now it's public. Now we all know about it through history. Right after that, he wrote this to God Create in me a pure heart, O God, and restore a steadfast spirit within me. So, though he was a major sinner at that point and caught red handed and now public, embarrassed, I'm sure. He went to God. Asked God to restore him with a pure heart and God gave it to him. And that's true of all of us. Okay? So don't think you have to be good enough. You'll never be good enough. But be honest with God. And that's pure to you. Peacemakers. This could have been first too. God brought peace for, with us. I know I was a man without peace. Before I got saved, I got saved at 20, age 27. And I was struggling. I didn't know why I was struggling, but I knew I was a man without peace. Losing heart, losing meaning, wondering what life was all about. I had no peace. Well, I had no peace with God. Now, I didn't know that, because I was resisting God, and I thought he had nothing to do with anything. Well, he had everything to do with everything. And when I found him, he made peace with me. I had peace with him. I had peace with myself. And that's major. When you have peace with yourself, you don't think about it because you just go, oh, I'm like having good health. You don't think about your health unless it's bad. But when you don't have it, it solids everything. And God gives it to us. Now, he says, now that I have given it to you, you know I'm a peacemaker, I want you to be a peacemaker. You're my citizens. You be peacemakers. You enter into those things that need peace. It may be between you and another person. It may be a forgiveness. Or it may be two other people, two other parties, and you're the intermediary. You're the wisdom. You're the person who can say the right thing at the right time in the right way to kind of bridge this thing. Don't be afraid to. It's what we're called to do. We are citizens of the earth, but we're more, we're citizens of heaven. So we have a different contribution, a better contribution, a deeper contribution to any situation. And when it happens, if it works out, we get what the interesting reward for it (coughs) is the reputation. It says you will be called the children of God. Now we already are the children of God. Now other people see it. That person made a contribution. He's a child of God. Different. Consider the blameless, observe the upright. This is in Psalm. A future awaits for those who seek peace. The world needs peace. Blessed are the persecuted. Now, until now, every one of these have have been attributes that I want. Until we get get to this one. (laughs) Uh, Oh. Now, it's interesting that he even brought it out because Jesus, at this point in his ministry, was not under persecution yet. Everywhere he went, people were loving him. Pharisees hadn't caught on yet and started confronting him later. had major confrontations with the religious elite as time went by, and of course, that's what killed, what killed him. But at this point, he was all wonder, all love. So how was it, they might have thought, what's he talking about? Persecuted. And yet, I read a statistic the other day, which I think I've pretty much already forgotten, which is pretty much how it is with me in statistics, but I think it was 90 million martyrs for Christ since the beginning in the world over time. A lot of people have suffered this. A lot of people. I don't want to be in that position, but if I am in that position... I want to have the character attributes that all the rest of mentioned. In other words, that I can rise to it with nobility. <clears throat> Lately, I've been... Well, I was, was going to say, I didn't find an Old Testament passage for that. And I think the reason is either my scholarship isn't quite good enough or it's not there. Because, in fact, Jesus was not persecuted in the Old Testament. And even he says in the ongoing verses that blessed are those who reviled against you something like, as they did the prophets. Remember? Not Jesus. Not yet. Because he wasn't there. But there is a verse in 1 Peter 3.14 that says, but Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Blessed. Blessed means you're better off than you were before. That's what blessing means. So now you're better off than you were before because of your persecution. Do not fear the threats. Do not be frightened. So I hope if the time comes, that's it. How we do it? Step up to it. I've been dealing, I've had, uh, made a couple of paintings for Voice of the Martyrs in different, different uh, places around the world lately. Did another painting for a group called Four by Four, which ministers to the uh, underground church in, in Iran. You know, they are not Christian countries. Anyway, these painting relationships have given me relationships with these people, and, and I have a better sensitivity to, this, to, to the plight of many Christians in the world. Uh, of the 90 million Christians that have died for their faith and since, since the beginning of time, the beginning of Christ, half of that has been in the last, gen, last century. It's going on. We don't know about because we have peace, mostly. It's happening. When I put this on my blog, when I finished the painting, put it on my blog or the <coughs> Excuse me, a friend of mine saw it who lives out in China and wrote me a letter afterward. Him as a businessman. He's a Christian, deep Christian. But he's out in China as a businessman. And this, and that's beside the point because this letter is out when he was in Pakistan a couple of years before that. He wrote me this letter and I'm going to read it to you. Hyatt, I absolutely love your recent work on the Beatitudes. I think you've really captured the soul of each verse. Wish I had stronger words to describe. Very well done. Several years ago, in 2008, I was reading through Matthew 5, actually listening, and found myself not being able to move out of the Beatitudes for several months, actually. I must have read and listened to them for hundreds of times. Now, there's a man hungering and seeking, I think, hungry and thirsty. Shortly after, Kristen and I were invited to go to Falazabad, Pakistan, where I found myself speaking two or three times a day in house churches and dirt lots converted into evangelistic meetings with 2,000 plus attending and even cricket matches. The verses of the Beatitudes and other passages just flowed. And they would if you listened to them hundreds of times. They did. Afterwards, and often during, many were delivered from demons and healed physically, with many others allowing Jesus to forgive their sins. Now, this is a Muslim culture, but he was having this experience. Most memorable moment was in a rope factory operated by young boys. The oldest was ten; uh, the oldest was fifteen. And the youngest eight. All serving ten-year quote contracts. Made with the boys' parents, who in turn received on average one thousand dollars. One time, they slept on the dirt floor of the factory, then rose to work at five a.m. and went through right into the evening. We brought the boys soup and bread, and all looked as all looked undernourished. As the Muslim manager took a break. and my host encouraged me to share the gospel with these boys, I had no idea what to say, so I simply started quoting Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are you people when people, excuse me, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I finished, all the boys started shouting at the top of their lungs and raising their fists, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. I had no other response but to start crying. What brave boys these were. Great work, Hyatt. Great work. Just that verse, those verses, had power and gave those children encouragement for which they otherwise had no hope. Finally, I had to paint Jesus. I painted all these and I thought oh, okay, he, got, he wanted me to paint Jesus. I'm afraid of that one. I thought it has to be painted in the same manner as the others. That is sort of an abstract background and trouble you don't know what he looks like. Actually, I used the same image, you'll appreciate this more than most, as is on the, my Last Supper painting. Because I, I think, yeah, that turned out good. and That was intimidating, too. I didn't know how to paint it, but it came out. So I used the same face, but messier, because it had to be this abstract background. In fact, it was so bad that I did it again. And the second time, I said it's still bad, but I can't do any better. I tell Ann, I'm going to go out and work some more on Jesus. It just seemed funny. <laughs> Jesus is the one working on me. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally thought, that's the best I can do. So he, looks, he, looks, he had to look like us. That is, he had to look like the rest of the paintings because that's what he did. He came here. He left heaven where he was majestic and full of light. He came here and looked like one of us. But in this one, he looks even worse. I mean, more beat up. But I thought, well, actually, that's how he was, too. We beat him up. He looked like hamburger before he was done. And so I think that's going to be it. But I felt it's just never good enough, you know. In the end, I thought I that's I th- all I can do, but it's not as good as it, as it should be. After I finished it all, and I had the poster, and I had this book, and I happened to be driving by where Johnny and Friends headquarters is. was some miles and hours from my house, so it's not like I get there very often. I thought I'd drop in and say hello to Johnny Johnny and Friends. I don't know if you know her, Johnny or She has a ministry to the disabled. very yes. international ministry, very p- wonderful person, quadriplegic, has been all her life, can't do anything, paints for the mouth when she paints. Very talented. She wasn't there. I left her a note, left her this book, left her a poster. I got a, a week or so later. I got a letter from her. It's so great. I'm going to sh- share it with you. Partly because it talks about the Jesus painting. That's the main reason. Oh my goodness, hi! When I returned home from, from a recent trip, I could not believe what was on my desk—a beautifully signed, fresh copy blah 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 blah. And down finally he says, "I was especially touched by the facial features of Jesus. He had no beauty." that we should desire him. There was nothing in him, as there was in Saul, that should attract us. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief, despised and rejected of men. Your representation of Christ strips away every preconceived notion we've coddled about our Savior and forces the viewer to embrace the image without any prejudice. I love that. You amaze me, sir. In heaven, the place where I can grab a big brush and bucket of paint, I will stand next to you and paint all the murals I want. (laughs) Not with the timid, constricted strokes of a brush withheld with my teeth, but with the free abandon of glorified hands that work wonderfully. Until that day, I'm your best cheerleader. God's grace be unto you forever. Yeah, it's very nice. And I'm very grateful. I'm going to just close with this. There's one more beatitude. There's actually several in the Bible. Every time you get a blessed is, there's a beatitude. There's one more that Jesus gave us. He was teaching in a crowd and somebody, a woman, yelled out, blessed be the woman who gave you birth and who nursed you. She's basically blessing Mary. But it was a way of speaking. Jesus let that just roll off. And he said, blessed better or more are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is the word of God, not to mention all the rest of it. If we want to be blessed, don't just read it. Do it. And we'll be blessed. God bless you all. Thank you.